When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jess, and honestly, guys, I'm just glad that we all survived the holidays. Our schedule got a little disrupted because I actually briefly ended up in the hospital with a new and exciting heart issue. Not to bore you with the details, but I am okay, and in the future, I'll try to remember that publicly stating your plans is a great way to tempt fate to derail them spectacularly. So plan ahead, guys, but if you can, shut up about it. <laughs> anyway, all is not lost. This week, we have a different kind of episode for you, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Charlotte Naylor Davis and Dr. Jeremy Swist about historical themes in heavy metal. Charlotte and Jeremy are co-hosting a free online conference next month with Brandeis University in Boston, and it's called Heavy Metal in Global Pre-Modernity. It is a three-day interdisciplinary Zoom conference, and it's going to take place between February 24th and the 26th. Sounds cool, right? I certainly thought so. Whether you're into the music or not, it's interesting to think about the influence history still has on so much of our media. So that's what we're talking about today. It's a little history, a little media studies, and a whole lot of metal. The conference actually has its own playlist, so of course I had to make one too. If you'd like to check out some of the songs that are mentioned on today's episode, we have a Spotify playlist as Dirty Sexy History called Episode 28, Historical Themes in Heavy Metal. But you don't have to remember that. We're going to go ahead and share that link on all of our social media platforms by the end of the day, as well as in the notes for this show. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Charlotte Naylor Davis and Dr. Jeremy Swist. Okay, so this is probably a loaded question, but I have to start with this one. Now, you both study metal and the ancient world. So what is it about the ancient world that appeals to metal musicians now? That's a big question. Um, so I, I study particularly texts. So I'm a biblical scholar by training, um, and, and I'm particularly interested in kind of how texts and classic like stories and narratives are replayed in metal. And from my perspective, what, what metal kind of is interested in, in my, my area, which is theology, is kind of the darkness and a bit of rebellion. I mean, there's a little bit of being able to rebel against sort of biblical narrative, classical traditions of religion, things like that. So a lot of the stuff I study is where people are taking what has always been taught to them as being the correct way of thinking about the world and are inverting it or, or picking up on the darkness in it or challenging it in some way. So like I say, in my area, which is slightly different to Jeremy's, um, I think what people are doing quite often is critiquing and trying to use ancient images, ancient stories to poke at current cultural norms. 
mm. and challenge them whether for good or bad and obviously Jeremy works on some of the stuff that's like poking at it and not coming up with a very nice interpretation but frequently for me people are using the bible or kind of ancient stories from Christian or Jewish tradition to challenge what they've been handed as the right way in inverted commas of thinking about history and the right way of thinking about culture. I'm a classical philologist by training, so I also mainly work with texts, um, literature, mainly prose literature, historiography, rhetoric. Um, but as a general classicist, I also am familiar with, you know, political, social, military history of especially um, Greek and Roman antiquity, as well as material culture with um, art uh, and numismatics and all of that. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in certainly how literature, but also um, history uh, is incorporated into heavy metal and kind of how, what aspects of antiquity uh, particularly resonate with uh, heavy metal bands. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a host of material from antiquity. And I, what I, I'm interested in, you know, what are the things that uh, metal bands tend to pay most attention to and uh, what they pay most attention to partly is what's ever kind of presented to them through popular culture so you kind of have to look at you know what are the what is hollywood focusing on um you know what is what are some themes in say fantasy literature uh that are sort of a bridge uh to the to the ancient world uh and so what you'll find is what metal bands most often but not exclusively tend to look at are things like uh epic literature, you know, battles, military history, um, heroes, gods, monsters, uh, things that represent things like masculinity, strength, violence, transgression, uh, but also uh, escape from mundanity and modernity. Uh, and so I see metal fundamentally uh, as valuing and charlotte got at this too rebellion and transgression uh anything that sort of upsets uh or challenges the established norms or uh rules uh or beliefs of uh current modern pre-industrial capitalist existence uh and that can go in various directions politically but also in terms of what are you focusing on that takes the place of this mundane modernity and what a lot of metal bands increasingly uh, over the past, you know, half century that this musical genre has existed is that they are looking at the pre-modern past as this fantasy or escapist alternative uh, that by writing lyrics about and singing about and making artwork about that bands can sort of escape from uh, this modernity uh, in order to live in this world where they feel more empowered, uh, where uh, they don't have to think about the problems or they can see how problems of today can be responded to in various ways. And that's how a lot of people use, you know, ancient history and classical antiquity is they use it to think about current problems and that can go in various directions politically as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Thing that metal metal's quite quite funny because it's such a big and it's changed quite a lot over time so 
we had everything I would say in metal from absolutely basic kind of really quite simplistic representations of history because someone's just gone do you know what that's a story with a load of like fire and death in it that's metal <laughs> and they've just reproduced it to to really quite intricate very detailed very well studied um very uh well thought out retellings or corrective readings of texts so you get kind of everything in between. So like I've studied, I've, I've published on, on two things. And one is Metallica Creeping Death, which is really just a kind of replaying of um, kind of the Cecil B. DeMille film of the Ten Commandments, plus a bit of the history. And they pick on it because it's about death, right? So like it's a song about death and there's a plague of fire and there's a plague of hail. I mean, these are great metal images, but there's nothing super sophisticated happening in the lyrics. And then my other thing that I managed to publish on was an album on Romans 512 by a band called Marduk. And they do a really detailed kind of intricate reading of this one verse in the text. So those two things, like one is about darkness and nihilism and, and it's really detailed and they've clearly thought about it. And the other is just like, metal. And <laughs> I think what's interesting is that the reason that that happens is partly because metal as a genre embraces both of those things. Metal fans, I tend to find, are both incredibly well read and also we react to this music because we love the energy of it. We love the kind of how it hits us right in the chest. So so the the kind of diversity of metal fans and why people are into metal music is represented in the way they use history. And that's where metal studies as a discipline has been really interesting, really useful to engage with, because what metal scholars and musicologists and ethnographers are doing is going, why this sort of sound? And when Jeremy and I are doing our work, we're partly going, why use this story with this sound? Like, <laughs> why is this combination work for telling this sort of tale or for retelling this sort of narrative? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, that was so eloquently put, I can't really, add to that but just you know other than just uh you know it happened some just some examples uh you know you have a band like jag panzer who will short a couple of years after seeing the wolfgang peterson troy film with brad pitt and all will write a song called achilles where it assumes that patroclus was his cousin right but then you'll also have uh bands like uh, uh imperious from germany who have you know a very uh, detailed and thoughtful, uh, just full two album adaptation of Homer's Odyssey, uh, where it's not just setting, you know, uh, parts of the Odyssey to music, but it's also kind of providing their own interpretation. They're, you know, giving uh, some monologues to various characters who perhaps don't have so much airtime in the Odyssey. Uh, there's another band from the US called uh, Slothfeg, where they have uh, another song based on the Odyssey called Eumaeus the Swineherd, which is, you know, one of the unsung heroes from the Odyssey. He is the, uh, uh, a slave of Odysseus who, um, you know, is waiting for his master on Ithaca to return after all these years. And he's the first person that Odysseus confides with uh, when he returns to Ith Ithaca from that part of the Odyssey that nobody reads. Um, and also just Slofeg is, uh, 
Mike Scalzi is the, the lead guitarist and, and vocalist. He's a philosophy professor in California. Um, he just put, they just recently put out an album um, about philosophy that has songs about Socrates in it. Uh, so there really is a range for, as, as Charlotte said, of um, the, the level of engagement with texts, with uh, the primary and secondary sources for uh, ancient history, philosophy, myth, etc., that these bands can engage in. But at, at the same time, as again, as Charlotte said, uh, you don't have to do that, right? Uh, you know, it's 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 really about the music and the feeling, um, and then sort of the more intellectual stuff is sort of on top of that if you want it. Okay, uh, if you like a song written about Virgil's Aeneid because it sounds good to you. And you don't read the lyrics. There's no. That's no problem. Okay? Uh, but if that interests you, then all the better. Uh, and I'm finding that uh, as metal, the as metal scenes throughout the world have become more diverse and more mature. I would say as fans are getting older, um, I feel metals become more reflective, uh, and I feel that metal fans are paying more attention to things like lyrics and looking at things critically. Um, whereas in the past, you know, perhaps they, you know, weren't as reflective. Um, and I think that just metal bands themselves are looking at their work more, uh, more thoughtfully as well. Um, and also sort of understanding some of the problems that come with, uh, how these texts can be put in the service of some harmful kind of ideas masculinity white supremacy and whatnot that come out of this you know this genre that was originally and still is to a great degree dominated by um euro-american white males right right now i'm actually glad that you mentioned that um i i saw that you had given a paper about the intersection of antiquity metal and white supremacy in the past um now you know people who are not um you know super familiar with metal a lot of times you know kind of looking at it from the outside you think that like that's kind of what the scene is about you know because like a lot of people you know you just kind of see like the worst people who stand out so what can you tell us about this intersection of course it doesn't represent everybody but what is it about antiquity that that draws like white supremacists or these these kind of racists? I see kind of heavy metals, uh, kind of problematic incorporations of material and from, from classical antiquity uh, is really a natural extension of a couple things. Uh, one, the wider trend of the ancient world being uh, used and abused for these purposes, yes. but also from, as I mentioned earlier, in uh, structural things within the metal scene, where again, this grew out of, you know, a predominantly Euro American white male base and metal itself uh, to some degree is reactionary, right? Uh, and this is where, uh, this is what makes sense of this nostalgia for a romanticized pre-modernity uh, as a form of transgression against modernity, right? Um, so for instance, you know, we have a lot of songs about uh, military history and battles. And these are songs that sort of construct an ideal masculine figure who, you know, is strong, self-sufficient uh, and defends their 
heritage defends their homeland against, you know, the invaders. And a lot, of course, these examples from history are, you know, these are the Charles Martels, these are the 300 Spartans, uh, these are the Knights Templar. And you can see how in those examples, things can easily lead to expressions of Eurocentrism, uh, xenophobia, um, and, and white supremacy in various forms. Um, now that's to say that not all bands, and I think the majority of bands that sing about, say, the Crusades and about the Spartans uh, and about uh, and about other topics, you know, they're not uh, consciously appropriating, you know, the Battle of Thermopylae in order to uh, express, you know, for example, the political platform of Golden Dawn uh, trying to kick all the Turks out of Greece, right? Um, but I think that nevertheless they see in the example of say the 300 Spartans or Julius Caesar, the Romans, et cetera, they see individual figures, uh, they, see in, they see cultures in which I think they subconsciously feel that they would belong uh, beca because they feel so alienated from the, the here and now. And if the metal scene is still predominantly white and male and Euro-American, it makes sense that they might feel more at home in these places, or at least they think they do, because these are times and places in which their particular demographics, you know, are not just powerful as they are today in privilege, but especially so. Um, so for instance, you know, you hear whenever I see, you know, a tweet going around or a thing where it's just like, if you could, you know, get into TARDIS and go to any point in, in, the, in the past, you know, uh, where would you go? And I'm glad that a lot of my friends who are women or people of color uh, or whatnot are answering these being like, I wouldn't want to go really anywhere further back because, you know, I don't want to go to a time when I can't vote. I don't want to go to a time where I'm, you know, a, uh, a second or third class citizen. It's just like, you know, so that, that that's part of it, um, I think. Uh, and so, and then there's some bands, you know, who, you know, in addition to, they, they kind of hone the reactionary nature of metal and also combine it with metals kind of uh, priority on transgression is one of its key values yeah. and they push transgression so far that they even uh, embrace the ultimately the ultimate transgressive ideas and symbols and that is you know fascism and right-wing political extremism okay? uh, and they kind of latch on to that sort of material in order to express not only their just full rejection of the modern day and an alternative, um, but, you know, also just something that makes them feel powerful and it combines with this music that really expresses their deep hatred. Yeah. Uh, and they're directing it at certain groups of people. And I personally find that almost contradictory to what metal is really about. Because I mean, metal, I, I was just I think, gonna say, yeah. I mean, those things really, it sounds like a contradiction there, you know, like wanting right. to 
uh, you know, kind of step out of this modernity and, and, and kind of transgress those kind of boundaries that people have. But, you know, when I think about that, I think of being more inclusive. I don't think about like going into fascism. Like, I don't see how they make that connection, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, that was interesting because in the last, I would say the last sort of 10 years or so, like the first metal conference I went to was on a metal and gender. And, and it, it's really interesting because what started to happen there was that there's a few scholars, so brilliant scholars, uh, Gabby Riches or Rosemary Hill, who's written a brilliant book on metal and media and women. And what happened was that we started saying, well, actually, some of this stuff, like metal's really transgressive in some ways, but it really adopted wholesale some other things from, from society, those particularly being misogyny and homophobia. Right. And that actually in the early years of metal, metal very much is reacting against one or two things. So it's not a wholesale rejection of society, right? It's not anarchy like punk was. There was still a need for punk, even though metal had already been around for 20 years, because what metal had done was did adopt some stuff from like the early guys of metal, they are, they're reject like, rejecting um, ideas of, say, capitalism and, you know, they're rejecting the world that tells them they have to live and look a particular way. But there's very little in there that's kind of undercutting gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. or, and if you think about the 80s, I mean, it's positively upholding them in some of the worst ways. Women in metal have always been around. We know that. That's part of our kind of, we, we look at it. There's women always around, but frequently as exactly the same as the rest of culture. Women tend to act up into male space. So we become harder, we become more in your face, we become more angry, we're the, even angrier than the men that we're hanging out with. Um, because metal didn't really politically discuss some of those things. So it's happened more in the last 20 years, but the first 20, 30 years of metal, really metal doesn't, doesn't do that. So even though if you're in it and you're someone who thinks quite inclusively, you will find yourself in a metal scene where you're like, well, this is, I feel quite accepted here. I feel quite inclusive. I'm very inclusive. My friends are inclusive. People coming very much from the outside did not feel that same way. And so, but it's no worse, particularly in metal, <laughs> than it is in other subcultures. But what's happening now is that as we challenge it, we're getting a lot of pushback. So quite a lot of the stuff when, when Jeremy posts things, you will frequently get people to go, I just, don't even care about the politics it's just about the music um <laughs> which is always always a funny thing to say about art that the politics doesn't matter and it's just the aesthetics of it that are important because actually we know that that is not how culture works <laughs> that we are all part of a discussion of producing the art then reflecting on it and then redefining its meaning mm -hmm. but there is there is that pushback that some people just don't want to be challenged. And that's usually people who are quite happy with the status quo. And it's, that's the same as kind of a lot of places in culture. I think metal, when people do want to use metal to uphold white supremacy or misogyny or homophobia, they, go, they have to go back to a pre-Christian era because one of the main things about metal as I know somebody working in kind of religious studies, one of the main assumptions about metal is it is anti-Christian, at least. Now, we know that that's not true, but in general, you know, we're anti-establishment and therefore it's hard to be anti-establishment and not at least be anti the majority of churches. 
And that means you have to go somewhere else. So you have to go further back and you have to go back to a pre-Christian era. The problem with that is that in very, in a lot of situations, that means heading into either something that is quite kind of white supremacist, or it means heading to a, um, a kind of nationalism. It's very hard to not get kind of into a, a discussion about nationalism. What's interesting about some of the papers we've got in the conference, to segue into the conference, is that we tried really hard to get people from, we set it as global pre-modernity exactly for that. Because I think Jeremy and I both felt if we just went for the people we knew and our areas, we would end up with a very white Western history heavy conference. So we opened it out a little bit and we've got some people giving papers that are gonna be, I think, really interesting on how people are reclaiming in inverted commas, kind of folk history or folk tales in ways that aren't heading for that nationalistic feel. But it's interesting because a lot of those artists have to do it very deliberately. They have to make a real statement that I am, yes, celebrating our pagan, pre-Christian, national folk idioms, but I'm not <laughs> doing this. They have to, because it's been so co-opted, hasn't it, by the right, you know, doing anything that's about your national history has been co-opted by those voices. So people are having to make real statements and we've got a few papers on that and discussions about that if people want to come and have them we'd, <laughs> we'd really like it because it's important oh, how absolutely. do you how do and, and it's a very good practical question how do you reclaim your identity within your country without becoming nationalistic is a real and it's different desperately difficult if you're english mm -hmm. i mean we're the, <laughs> it's really hard not to sound like a horrible colonial nightmare <laughs> right right of course now um another another thing with that that i wanted to to ask you now of course you're, you're also concerned with biblical studies and feminism now uh, a lot of people especially yeah. in america they don't necessarily understand how those things go together uh much less how they can kind of coexist with metal how does all that work uh well i yeah my work sits at some sort of odd intersection of of all of the the wrong things <laughs> I guess that, that's kind of helpful I just sit as the odd one out uh, so I think so in biblical studies particularly so I I, I work I do work for churches in, in my other life but I'm an academic biblical scholar and so a lot of what I do with the bible is very similar to what a classicist would do with classical texts uh, you know I study the bible as um Yes, it is a cultural artifact that has been used in lots and lots of ways, but also it is this text that's a product of its time. So biblical scholars spend a lot of time looking at the history behind the text and who's writing it and how that would be received then. Um, but because I am particularly interested in the reception of these stories, and that's how I ended up studying metal and the Bible, was I'm interested in not just what this text says, but how has it been used? developed, retold, how do we end up today with the understanding of it that we have? And that's really where my feminist critical study comes in, because the Bible itself, many of those texts are extremely patriarchal, and you can't get away from that, and written from a male's point of view, pretty much for men. However, there's an awful lot that's been done with them that is not what's in the text. It's what's been accrued over centuries. Right. And so, and very few people, kind of like with, with classical stories as well, and, and anything from sort of 
um, most people have heard the story more than they've read the actual text. So one of my questions is, well, let's go back to the original and see what's in there. And then let's analyze why we think it says what we all know the text is about. And most people who say they know what's in the Bible haven't read the Bible for a really long time. And I would include people in church as much as people in normal culture in that. It's such a, it's such a kind of ubiquitous text if you've grown up in the West, it's, it's all over the place, which means that people think they know what's in it. And, and actually there's been feminist critical studies on the Bible since about 1890. You know, the first women's Bible is written in 1898. So it's been around. And the way that metal fits in that for me, again, is this question of how have my metal friends, uh, me, and like, um, how have we ended up thinking this is what the Bible says or using the Bible in this way and feeling we need to push back on it? Like, why? Why is the Bible so easy to use as a text to push back against so many things? Why can I make you so angry by quoting the Bible in a metal song? Like that's, you know, that even people who aren't particularly Christian can get really annoyed by the way Christian symbols are used. So, so that for me is that I, I tend to study this kind of history of reception thing. Um, I use metal when I teach, particularly critical studies of texts, because it can sound so extreme to students that the moment I put metal in there and I say, well, how did we get to this? They feel really comfortable critiquing all of the levels back through kind of 2000 years. <laughs> so the moment the professor is going, well, I'm gonna take seriously a metal song, then they can start taking seriously how films have interpreted stories, how books have interpreted, and they can see that maybe what they think they know about the ancient world is filtered through 2000 years of other people's writing, of other people's art. And actually they haven't received the pure text, pure text, big inverted commas for people who aren't seeing a video. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, we have, these, we have these assumptions. And so for me, those, those sort of things fit together. I mean, to get really personal, like, like I say, I, I work for a church part of my life um, and I'm very much a kind of feminist. I'm very much a kind of, I've been in those battles. I've been in those real battles of can women speak in church? Can I, am I allowed to get up? Am I valued equally? And so I have used study and feminist criticism to do that work and to, to hold that kind of place of like, well, if we're gonna say that women cannot speak, that gay people can't get married, that abortions can't happen, if we're gonna say that, you you best bet I'm taking you to task on the text itself. Like we're gonna, we're gonna get it to it, right? We're gonna go right back to the beginning because if we're gonna do that, and the, the danger for me, I guess, with the Bible that isn't particularly, isn't quite the same in say classics, um, is that people are using the texts I study to legislate on people's lives. Yeah. So I take it very seriously that it's important for us to center that kind of, understanding that this is not that none of us read these books pure even if you can read them in the original languages you're still a 20th 21st century person reading a first century text you are not reading <laughs> like a first century audience and therefore 
your culture matters and what you have inherited when you come to that text matters. Um, and so they really, they really do link up. It seems like they don't from, a, from the first, but actually it's all about this cultural interpretation and cultural understanding of story and cultural understanding of religion. But yeah, as a, as a woman, you ended studying the Bible, you become kind of pretty set on taking it seriously and getting critical because someone is likely to make a law based on what they oh, think absolutely. this thing is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, that, um, and as you mentioned, I mean, that's why this kind of study is, is so important because so many people, you know, they, they use the Bible, as you say, to justify this kind of misogyny, this kind of homophobia and, and sometimes even racism, you know, and it's, it's just so upsetting because of course, when you do go back to the text, that's not what it says. And, and, as, and also it's not necessarily what it means. Are there any particular bits of the Bible that, that people, you know, say are, are in there are important, but don't actually exist? Like, is there, is there anything that people, you know, kind of use as an argument that isn't actually in the text? Well, there's a really simple one, right? So the simplest one would be uh, biblical marriage. Uh, a biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. Is it? Because I've read the Old Testament and t- there's, there's one man and his wife and her slave. There's one man and, I mean, there's quite often one man. I guess they've got half the equation right. <laughs> but the idea of a biblical marriage that is based on love and respect and two people, a man and a woman who choose to get married and they both agree what they're doing, and then they stay together for the entirety of their lives, it just isn't in there. And like, and that's one that's been thrown around so much, but it's just not the case, you know? And there are, what people do with the biblical text, right, is you take a number of verses, this is how theology works, you take the whole thing. So as a biblical scholar, I tend to go, what exactly is Paul saying, or what is the Gospel of Matthew saying? Theology takes the whole of the canon, takes a lot of information from it, and extrapolates from that a theology, a dialogue about a subject. And most people don't know that's what happens. Most people think that if a Christian says something, there must be one verse that can back it up. But there isn't. There's usually a framework. So you can build a framework from the New Testament that says that marriage is two people. And because of the context in which the Bible is written, it is a heterosexual marriage because in the ancient, you know, in the ancient Mediterranean, regardless of other sexual kind of um, expression that is happening, marriage is still very much heterosexual. So you can do that, but to build it into this thing that at least kind of late evangelicalism has built of two people who are in love and like, yeah, no, like this is a first century text. Marriage is mainly about property and it's mainly about kind of where your legal or social standing is. And that's only for the rich anyway, because let's not pretend that, that somehow rich and poor and slave and free get to, you know, we just don't live in that culture. So I would, for me, that would be the kind of like the basic one, like go and pick out how many married. I mean, David's married to like, King David is married to a lot of women. <laughs> Frequently, people, you know, Abraham has, you know, has a concubine and like with uh, Rachel and Leah and one of them gets married to Jacob. So he marries her sister by accident. He's tricked into it. 
um, and has to work another year to marry the person he's really in love with, he doesn't not have sex with her for that year. They have kids. But yeah, go on. You 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 make a law based on what gay people can do because of biblical marriage. <laughs> like, come on now. On the other hand, we have more faithful adaptations that are can be just as problematic. A as Charlotte said, you know, the Bible itself was written, you know, by men and have a patriarchal point of view. And that's certainly the case with the body of Greek and Roman uh, literature as well. So that even bands that are faithful, quote unquote, to say primary sources, you know, are still uh, looking at the historical reality of, of antiquity through very restricted and biased lenses. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, for instance, uh, you know, one of our, the uh, Roman historian, uh, Christina Hotelin, will be looking at the reception of the, em the Roman Empress Messalina uh, in a panel in our conference. Uh, and the sources for Messalina, you know, kind of paint her as, you know, this uh, essentially a prostitute in purple, right? right? Um, and, you know, she basically spent her whole reign just being complete, just manipulating her husband uh, and being just the stereotypical, you know, deviant power, woman in power, you know, who has no sense of self-control and is just, you know, sexually voracious uh, and everything. Uh, and uh, there's a handful of metal songs that with which that resonates because, you know, they want, because there's a, uh, a big theme in metal songs, you know, dealing with the reception of women is, you know, uh, kind of the, the trope of the town of the femme fatale that, you know, these songs represent sort of male anxieties about the loss of control to the sexual power of women. Um, and so figures like Cleopatra, Messalina, as well as, you know, Elizabeth Bathory or sort of, you know, the, your stereotypical witch, Right. Uh, the whole of Babylon gets in there. Babylon, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, they become sort of these things that are both, you know, the object of the erotic male gaze, but also, you know, uh, an object of fear, you know, for, you know, the lo that loss of control. So the historical sources for Messalina you know, are by, say, the poet Juvenal, who wrote, you know, one of the most misogynist pieces of classical literature, his sixth satire on her, uh, describing all these things, as well as, you know, the historian Tacitus and the, uh, and the biographer Suetonius, and they present these very, you know, elite male, you know, senatorial, uh, or just upper class sort of stereoty uh, stereotypes of women in power, they, uh, they, uh, they were raised on this Republican literature, which is very patriarchal, and so they considered the sort of imperial system in which women, you know, as part of the imperial, imperial family, have this more behind-the-scenes influence. They find that kind of an upset to the traditional order. So that even a band like Countess from the Netherlands uh, or Autocrator from France, who write songs about Messalina, you know, they're reading these sources and they're writing songs about Messalina, but that is not necessarily the, ne the Messalina who is the historical Messalina. Yeah, okay. right, it's like she becomes uh, so, more like an archetype. Exactly, so, so even when you are engaging, you know, 
more directly with the texts uh, and just, you know, if you're directly quoting them, you're, you're still replicating uh, things that are not necessarily true to reality, uh, mm -hmm. to historical reality. And they, that can be potentially harmful when it comes to, you know, issues of uh, toxic masculinity uh, and misogyny in metal. Uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, even sources that are traditionally treated as not as more, you know, serious, like, you know, Herodotus or Plutarch, right? Um, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, writing satire and everything. Um, so, for instance, Alexander the Great by Iron Maiden and lots of songs about, our, about Alexander the Great. He's one of the most popular figures in heavy metal, partly because he's this idealized masculine figure, you know, who goes out and conquers the world, but he's, he's also seen as sort of a culture hero, this common cultural touchstone of, of the ultimate conqueror for quote-unquote Western civilization, and certainly there's a lot of Greek nationalism that is put into that from Greek bands. Um, but anyway, you know, our earliest sources for Alexander are from the middle of the Roman Empire, you know, several centuries after Alexander. And so they are sort of written at a time when during like the reign of the Emperor Trajan, where, you know, there's this nostalgia and there's this sort of emulation of this figure who, you know, goes on a great Eastern campaign to fight, you know, the Persians or Parthians or whoever, you know, Eastern bad guy is out there with all the Orientalist, you know, kind of prejudices there. Um, and so we are not necessarily getting the Alexander uh, no. like the there. historical Alexander. And, it's it's and, like and an he, ideal of an ideal. Right. And also, and it's not just the primary sources, it's the secondary sources. It's the stuff written by modern historians. So for instance, yeah. uh, Steve Harris of Iron Maiden wrote the lyrics to Alexander the Great. This Iron Maiden song came out in 1986 because he was reading middle mid-20th century. Uh, accounts of Alexander by people like Robin Lane Fox and who are replicating this idea that Alexander was a culture hero who, uh, you know, conquered in order to form this brotherhood of man uh, and all of this stuff when in fact he was just this egotistical, you know, uh, narcissist who committed genocide in <laughs> places like India and, you know, and, there, and it sort of replicates this idea that there wasn't like this rich, this rich, diverse cultures of the Persian Empire there to begin with that he suddenly brought culture and civilization to. You know, that's a very harmful kind of view of this person uh, that, you know, is being replicated. And that's why, you know, I think Charlotte and I and others, you know, want to do what we do as both firmly veteran metalheads as well as um you know as scholars of this material in antiquity is to kind of show that we need more recent ideas about how to look at this material um you know if metal as you said if metal's truly transgressive then we shouldn't just be you know looking at kind of what these hegemonic constructs are right um, and we should be looking, at, we should be trying to look at something that kind of subverts those narratives, while at the same time, going for something that's more authentic, right? Metal is about establishing authenticity, okay? And so you would think that you would want to get at what the real truth is, okay, as best as we can, looking at the past, uh, rather than sort of falling back on 
these hegemonic constructs. Right. 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 Absolutely. Do you have anything to add to that, Charlotte? Well, I think there's I think there's something yeah really interesting about as well like that frequently one of the things that's good about metal studies is really new right so where punk studies and subculture studies have been going for quite a long time metal studies really has only been going i think the first conference was sort of 2008 um it's quite new and that's partly because both sort of metal has this wonderful quality of not really caring what the establishment thinks of it so like weirdly punk and hip-hop really want people to recognize that they're doing something interesting like hip-hop and poetry like they want to be acknowledged and punk has always wanted to be acknowledged as political but metalers have just sort of got on with being metal and being like we don't really care what people think so it wasn't looked at for a long time and it was quite considered to be quite low culture so if we can take those kind of traditional ways of thinking about culture which i don't ascribe to but are used a lot and i think i think people forget quite often with metal that metal artists are doing something with these narratives quite deliberately when they're using them that they are doing something they are attracted to them for a reason as well they resonate culturally for them and they've picked them up for a reason and that particularly i think what's what we've tried to do in the conference is get people who are looking at global pre-modernity and it's very different when you're looking kind of what people are doing in say norway and and kind of Sweden with looking for a pre-Christian past than what people in colonized countries are doing when they're looking for that pre-Christian past. And we have to take seriously the difference in kind of reclaiming something that is a con constantly told trope like an Old Testament story or say a classical story in Western history where we've grown up with those stories than when you are using a pre-Christian story that has been suppressed, that has been quashed, that has not been told to you, or singing in a language that has been quashed and keep kept from you and been tried to be diminished. So people are doing quite often very different things, but they are doing something. It's not happenstance. People don't search for history just because it's, you know, like it's either because it's around and it and it has an aesthetic value in their culture so it gives cultural capital or it's because they're trying to do something active and we quite often think about metal as unthinking but what the conferences i've been at and what the, the papers that have been put in for ours show is that bands are doing something in culture and they're reflecting and therefore they are also recreating these stories for a new audience so there will be some people who've only ever encountered classical history via metal. So as a classicist, you want to know what they're receiving. You want to look at it, not as, not as is it appropriate or not, or correct or not, but just the way that they put that story out. But this is now the classical story they're receiving. So as a biblical scholar, I frequently look at films and literature because for the easiest thing to think about is say Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments film. But for a whole generation of people, particularly in the States and the UK, in the late 20th century, that is how those people received the Bible. That's it. That's what they know. Charlton Heston is Moses. He is Moses. And therefore, and therefore, no matter how much I tell you that's not true, when you go back and read the original text and you read it in the original and you're reading the primary source, your brain is still thinking Charlton Heston. It's really hard to dislodge that. So one of the things that we're looking at is that thing of like, well, what are people now receiving? And 
there will be, you know, there's, I haven't even, I've never read anything on Genghis Khan since I was at school, like at high school. And Genghis Khan was obviously put across to me as the horrendous, <laughs> the Mongol horde, right? That's how we got presented. But the Who, the, there's a paper on, on Who, which are a, a Mongolian band, their song is doing something very different. And now I've got a reception of it that is a very different story about Genghis Khan. But when I go back to read those books, I've got them in my head as well. So these things are cumulative. And I think that is, that is fascinating, but it hasn't been, I think a lot of the time people assume that metal because it's, it can't be possibly doing the same amount of detailed, beautiful thing as say a Mozart opera is doing with the same text. But it is. <laughs> Hate to tell that to the <laughs> to the high culture people among us. But our popular culture, films and literature and music are doing as much interesting cultural retelling as the things that we think of as traditional from Mozart or Bach or Handel or Shakespeare. You know, yeah, Shakespeare's uh, Caesar is as interesting and layered as any Julius Caesar in a metal band, and they are doing a very similar thing, whether you like the sound of it or not. And we have to remember that, uh, you know, Mozart wrote a, wrote a piece called, you know, Lick My Arsehole or something <laughs> like that, right? Uh, you know, we kind of, there's this artificial kind of, you know, boundaries we draw between what is classical in yeah. both the musical and, you know, cultural sense of classical antiquity and, you know, what is, vulgar or you know in both senses of the word or just you know popular you know yeah. for the masses right yeah. and so i think you know the distinction between popular music and classical music you know is just very artificial distinction as there is between you know popular literature and classical literature right it's just you know and when in fact if you actually look at what these artists are producing you know they are you know just as intelligent uh, you know, people, and we have to rethink, you know, what, you know, what do we mean by educated? And, you know, what is their identity? Uh, and so I really, really love that these bands like The Who, for instance, uh, you know, or Semikin over in Mexico that are, uh, you know, singing about, um, you know, Aztec and Mesoamerican heritage. Um, I love what they're doing, that they're kind of bringing, they're not only kind of bringing attention to to what their what their heritage heritage and perhaps uh, you know as a way that seen through their own eyes, a eh? um, uh, but they're also yeah they're challenging what bands from you know these Euro American countries are you know have been replicating about them. So for instance, you know with the reception of Egypt, right? Yeah. We have the most popular bands that has songs about that sings about ancient Egypt is Nile. They're from South Carolina, right? <laughs> and right. yes, they do, they are very interested in Egyptology. Carl Sanders, you know, the leader of the band, he does, you know, he reads the primary secondary sources, you know, he's very well read in that stuff. However, you know, when he's writing the lyrics and producing songs about Egypt, he is still nevertheless uh, incorporating a lot of Orientalist tropes, uh, partly because this idea of Egypt as this land of magic and mystery and the irrational and magic and all of that, you know, appeals to metal's sense of mystery and uh, nostalgia for the unknown and the uncanny and any sort of kind of chaotic kind of transgression 
oppressive kind of uh, thing that uh, challenges uh, modern reality. But nevertheless, they're so, so they're doing that. However, now we have bands like Crescent. Okay, they are from Cairo. They are actually Egyptians who are writing who are producing you know metal about Egypt. Uh, and I'm really glad to see that you know bands like that are you know kind of reclaiming. Uh, you know their, um, you know this this heritage of theirs, and uh, kind of putting it into the metal scene on their own terms. Right? That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, yeah. now there seems to be quite a lot of crossover um, between music and history. Uh, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of musicians uh, are also, you know, as you say, interested in the primary sources. Uh, some of them are historians themselves. Uh, for example, uh, Sterling Morrison from the Velvet Underground became a medieval history professor, you know, um, and there are quite a lot, a few things like that. So you have that, that music, and I mean, of course, in metal in particular, but music is, it's so, it can be very transcendent, right? It's that way to kind of tap into that uncanny. And the history is almost the search for it, right? Do you find a lot of crossover with people who are interested in, in the music and the history? I mean, it might be because it's like the people that I end up connecting with have that, yeah, <laughs> have that. yeah. But, but I do think so I would say there's something really I think most historians I know um are interested in in the story and the way it's been told right like and we want to get behind the stories we've heard and find out what of that is real and what isn't um and we want to dig around and and kind of figure out like how real is what we've experienced and what we know and we get excited when we find a new thing that expands the story so like most people I mean so I'm thinking about my age here so I'm 43 most of what I did at school was names and dates and then social history became a thing and I love social history right so knowing that there's all of this stuff in the bible that I study or that I mean, my dad was a history teacher so he would take us to like museums and point out the baby's bottle that someone had found and the the game that they're playing with. And suddenly this is live people. These are not archetypes anymore. Suddenly these are real people. And I would say that, that musicians are also storytellers quite often, and particularly in metal. Metal has a history of the epic stuff, like 12 minute or the, or the, you know, the concept album where you're telling a whole story and you get into that. So we have this history in metal culture of being of metal fans being willing to invest in the music for a good long length of time before they find out kind of what it's about. Like that's what we do. We we are listeners and we're happy to sit, like I say, for 12 minutes for the payoff of whatever it is. So I think that interaction of being storytellers is a thing. What I think musicians do quite brilliantly, and, and I would say artistic exegesis in general does this, and I, so artistic kind of readings of text do this, is that they can focus us on, on one aspect that we might be, might be kind of smoothed over in the text, so might be passed over quite quickly. So you were talking earlier, Jeremy, about that, the figure, and obviously that's just a tiny figure, but can be, you can push in on it. And what a musical piece can do is go, hey, this thing that's weird, we're going to sit with it. We're going to sit with it for 20 minutes. Like, you, like in the text, it would be a sentence, but we're going to sit there. So I see bands, particularly with, with biblical texts or biblical stories, yeah, picking up on, like, um, Babylon the Great in Revelation is, is one chapter, but you can sit and focus on her for a really long time. 
And in doing that, you reflect and you pull out other things and you explore other things in your imagination. And history and history writing is partly imagination as much as it's fact. So I know we all want to think that as historians we're objective, but I think we've blown that out of the water, haven't we, in the last few years? It's imagination. It's, you know, we, we're telling you the story in a new way based on the new things we've learned. I think music does that brilliantly because what music can do is say, okay, you're the 300 and you're waiting to go into battle. How does that feel? Put yourself there. Put yourself, you know, like you're the soldier. How do you feel? Well, you know, and you can, you step past what you know that some people went into battle and you start thinking about what is it to be a person going into battle? Right. And that can be used for good or ill, but it's a really exciting way of engaging history because now I'm feeling like the woman on a pedestal or the king or the pauper or like I'm imagining being that person. I'm singing it, so I'm physically involved in it. There's an embodiment there. So my example of this is Creeping Death by Metallica. Um, there's a point at which the audience are singing. They become part of the performance when it's happening. And they're singing this chant of die, right? <laughs> now, they're egging on the, the angel of death to kill the innocents in Egypt. So it's pretty dark and weird. But you're invited as the audience, and, and metal is very much an embodied kind of music. We, it's very something that you're, you're sort of, we sing along to it, we headbang it, it's very physical. So the audience are invited into the storytelling to embody the chant of the willingness of God to conquer this group of people. And you, the crowd, become that. Now that's an exciting way of doing social history I think like, it kind of puts them I can in, their, bring in their shoes in a way like you wouldn't necessarily think so because of course you're listening to music but as you say you kind of embody it it's like historical fiction you know you're kind of imagining how those people would have felt and you're kind of experiencing the history in a different way yeah yeah and you know what's interesting and as well and very tricky about you know some of these uh things that Charles just described with Creeping Death or with the 300 and everything is um you know, are you, is this music being written in order to sort of just to simulate and fantasize being in this pre-modern reality and there is <clears throat> nothing that extends from it beyond just that, you know, fantasy world that has been created that extends into sort of a worldview or political mindset, for instance. Okay. Uh, so for instance, uh, you know, when I was doing research on the reception of the Byzantine Empire in heavy metal, uh, you know, I was looking at some songs written by uh, Greek bands um, about the fall of Constantinople in 1453, okay, which, you know, has been in that part of the world, you know, kind of romanticized as something like the Battle of Thermopylae, a last stand of, you know, the remnants of the Roman Empire, you know, uh, with, you know, the, the Venetians and, and Genoans kind of helping out as well uh, against, you know, this, these invaders from the quote unquote East and everything. And you can see how that can, you know, go into kind of racist and xenophobic directions. 
Um, and so, you know, I was looking at some of these songs and, you know, I, you know, I saw, saw a couple songs where, you know, the lyrics kind of imagining being a soldier, you know, defending Constantinople at this time and basically saying things that about the Ottomans that, you know, taken out of context would be uh, very considered very racist, right? And I don't want to repeat them, okay? Uh, and so I look at the song and I was like, gee, you know, uh, the audience might interpret this as, you know, um, you know, in ways that perhaps were not intended, okay? And that's an issue that also, you know, yeah. we have to think about, you know, when you put out a song that seems to contain these certain viewpoints and these certain rhetoric, you no longer have control over how it is used or interpreted, right? Um, or people may see it as affirming a certain worldview or politics that were perhaps not intended by artists. Eh? And so that is a tricky thing with this sort of exegesis that we do. But then I realized that, you know, unlike what I normally do as a classical philologist where I can't go and talk to Virgil or Cicero or Plato and ask, what did you mean by this? Because they're long dead. I can actually talk to, you know, the people who produce this music, which is something I'm actually not used to. And I know this is a normal yeah. thing for a lot of people doing research on things, especially in metal studies. Uh, so I talked to the artist, you know, who's from Greece, who's, uh, you know, who's a, a graduate student, uh, you know, in the UK, actually. And uh, he, you know, he wrote, he talked about that song. He said, you know, I, I understand that, you know, this was perhaps something in retrospect that might have been regrettable. But at the time, I did not intend this to be a reflection of my worldview. Uh, this is something, one, that is he thought that would be, you know, authentic to the character he was creating in this song, right? And two, he was also basing this on primary sources. Yeah. There are primary source texts from the fall of Constantinople written by contemporary historians who put speeches into the mouths of, you know, the Emperor Constantine XI that say certain nasty things about the Ottomans. So he took and it so, straight from the text. So he took it straight from the text right? Calling them, you know, animals and pigs and all of this stuff, right? Uh, and so we have to think about, is this like playing a violent video game, right? Where you're kind of using this as sort of a way to separate yourself from reality and channel your transgression, channel your aggressive instincts in a, in a healthy way, okay? Which is, you know, I think something that metal does, especially if you look at death metal, you know, it's like, I listen to hammer fast smash face doesn't mean I'm going to go out and smash people's faces with hammers. You know, to right, use an of course. Example, right? Right. Um, you know, playing violent video games doesn't make you a school shooter. Uh, and so when you have these narratives of being a medieval knight, okay, of being a Spartan fighting the Persians, right? You know, you are channeling those kind of instincts and putting yourself into this reconstructed fantasy modernity. Um, but because it also involves real history okay, and something that has a legacy beyond, you know, just this artistic context, um, you know, where do we draw the line? Yeah. Okay? And also, and again, an, you know, the audience is not necessarily receiving this as just a fantasy. They're seeing this as their heritage, potentially, okay, or something that reaffirms kind of the ideologies they're bringing into it right yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's it's a really key thing in looking at feminism and race and, and kind of gender and sexuality in, in metal. It's been a it's been a big thing because that discussion, and I'm sure we will have it a number of times over the over the conference, because the discussion of what does it mean for somebody to be singing violent lyrics about say being violent against a woman's body, which happens quite a lot. <laughs> Um, and violent sexual experiences in, in in metal lyrics, you know, women's bodies have been used a lot for this sort of stuff. We ascribe morality to them and, and we kind of have debates over them without any women <laughs> being asked. And what does it do for you? I mean, I you know, because I talk quite effervescently, I guess, and positively about embodiment. But what does it do for me to sing those lyrics over and over again if they're violent against women? As, as a man, what does it do to you? Do you start to see women differently? As a woman, what does it do for me to be singing? I mean, I look at some of the, the there's a really good little podcast done by Keith Carr Harris and Rosemary Hill called um, Disenchanted, I think it was called. And they looked at sort of like, what do you do when the song that you loved as a teenager, you then realize is horrendously misogynist or horrendously racist? And what has that done to you to be living that and singing along with it? And we have to have those discussions as well of reception and um, and culture, the, how we create a culture. And I think what's interesting about the debate that's going on in classics at the moment, certainly on Twitter, as far as I can see it, about what it is to predominantly think in white terms about the ancient world and talk in those terms. Who do we exclude when we do that? Mm -hmm. who, do, who doesn't feel comfortable in the room when you don't critique and you don't go, hang on a minute, just so we all know we are studying this, but we don't agree with it. If we don't say that out loud, what does it do? What sort of culture do we create? And I hope in our conference, because we've got such a, we've managed to get a really good diverse set of presenters, but I hope we will manage to critique and cut under some of that and, and say out loud, these are what our texts say, and these are what our bands are saying. We as a scholarly community don't agree with <laughs> these things but so frequently in historical study and in, in the study of popular culture we don't say out loud that we disagree with them we look at it and go well we're just analyzing it it's like well can we <laughs> can we for a minute because metal culture like any other you know any subculture is made up of kind of and becomes a place that is comfortable for some people and not comfortable for others and some of that is unspoken if we're not careful. And we don't even notice that those people aren't coming in anymore. You know, if you're not gay, you might not notice that nobody else around you is gay. If you're not, if you're white, do you notice that, that there are no people of color coming into your conference or your club or your gig? You know, how much do we notice? And so that's part of, of all of these discussions that we're trying to have, I guess, and uh, is, picking up on that in along all aspects from history to to metal maybe maybe we're overreaching for the conference i don't think so though i think it's going to be really good fun <laughs> right right now that's, that's so important uh you know of course to, to make that point that these aren't your personal beliefs right like you want it to be inclusive and um and as you were mentioning jeremy like a lot of these archetypes you know you have uh, you have like the spartan soldier and you have the medieval knight i mean all of these are uh you know, they're, they're very kind of like classic kind of masculine ideals, aren't they? Are there any, you know, uh, kind of strong women who appear a lot? I noticed in your playlist, uh, we had Boudicca and, uh, and a couple of others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, 
there are a small handful and uh you know i hope that you know there'll be this is a real there's a lot of un, untapped potential here um but so there is one type of woman from antiquity that seems to be readily incorporated into metal and i like to think of them as sort of a foil to the kind of vicious femme fatale and i call and i i think of this as sort of the virtuous rebel okay? <laughs> uh and these are people like boudica and these are people like queen tamiris of the Thasigetai, okay? and uh or queen zenobia of the palmyrene empire right and catlin gillespie uh and dan moffitt will be presenting on Boudicca's uh, reception in metal in the conference. But we also have in the conference chairing one of the panels is Christian Thudurslev, Christian uh, who's a Danish scholar who has written on uh, Queen Tamiris, you know, uh, is a very similar figure. And so these are, I think, figures that are receptive to metal bands, especially metal bands that um, have women musicians in them. A, where women have creative control over the lyrics and and as and the direction of of the band, uh, and so they're finding these as strong figures who are independent but also transgressive figures because Boudica is yes. you know rebelling against the Roman Empire, Tamiris is uh, rebelling against the Persian Empire or at least resisting the expansion of the Persian Empire under Cyrus, right? And then Zenobia is also facing the um, the Roman Empire to later time. Uh, there's a band called Zenobia from Spain, um, where they have one of their albums. There's an album cover of her dressed in armor, you know, uh, you know, leading the charge and everything, which is not accurate at all. But still, you know, it's cool, <laughs> right? It's very cool. Uh, and so these are women who, you know, are not perpetuating, um, you know, like the Messalina Cleopatra, you know, tropes. Um, and I think, at least from my perspective, I think it's because they are essentially performing the same roles as, say, this male medieval knight Templar or Alexander uh, or whatnot. You know, these are warriors, right? And these are rebels. Okay? And those are two things that are very um, germane to the metal aesthetic. Uh, and they are also women. And so these are looked upon as figures who uh, speak to, you know, the increasing number of women within the scene as musicians, as fans, et cetera. Okay, so um, that's, so that's it's, it's encouraging that I see a lot of that, um, but we do have to acknowledge that, at least from my perspective, you know, these figures are incorporated because they are essentially performing male roles traditionally and so they fit into you know this they, they fit into that mold uh more readily than than others right it yeah. sounds like the um the the female sexuality though is still kind of seen as as a thing of fear so like these women mm -hmm. who are held up it's because as you say they're fulfilling these male roles is the female sexuality always kind of uh mistrusted or looked down on so with these yeah. figures you know unlike again the messalinas and cleopatras of the world you know their sexuality you know is not is not mentioned and you know even in the you know the album artwork and the other representations of them you know 
they're not eroticized or anything because they're not seen as in that role. However, sure. what's interesting is uh, with some of the songs about Boudicca, at least, uh, as well as Tamiris, uh, is their role as mothers is emphasized. Okay? Right. And because, you know, Boudicca, one reason she read the rebellion was uh, because these Roman generals and soldiers basically sexually assaulted their her daughters right before her eyes right, right? and also cyrus had killed queen tamiris's son a okay? uh and so their indignation against these imperialist oppress oppressor uh, oppressors is coming not only from the perspective of you know the underdog and the defender of one's homeland and culture but also from the perspective of someone of someone who is you know, a parent, right? Yeah. And I think it's important that they're acknowledging, you know, those perspectives and those feelings a, uh, in metal, um, you know, where traditionally, you know, any sort of these shows of, you know, affection like that are sort of, you know, yeah. not thought of, you know, as, as being appropriate for metal. And I think that's, and these are signs that that's changing. Well, that's very positive. I did a paper, I did an article with Amanda DeJoya, who's done brilliant work on kind of mothers and metal and things like that. She's brilliant. We, we did a paper together and we were looking at um, women's sexuality kind of in the, and how it's described in the bodies of women in metal. So kind of, and we, it's called Cursed Be the Fruit of Thy Womb. Because <laughs> figures do turn up that aren't kind of, like, Mary turns up a lot in metal because, She's this odd figure in Christian and particularly Catholic history, um, and you can be quite scornful of her. And what's interesting, what we found was interesting was that men's sexuality can be quite neutral, but women's sexuality never is, right? So either we're praising women for being virgins and we're scorning them for not being, or we're doing the opposite. And what we found was an awful lot of metal really praises people for being promiscuous, but they'll still use the word whore, right? Which is fascinating because it's like, I'm gonna praise you for being a whore. Well, a whore is a very pejorative term and comes from a particular type of morality. So the transgression there is saying it's good to be this, but it's not the respect of saying you're a sex worker, you're a person who uses sex, your body to, gain respect and money and a place in the world, you're still being judged through the male gaze. And, and that's really interesting with female sexuality in, I mean, this is in culture generally. So, so, so what, we, what we said was, what we found was an inversion of kind of sexual morals. So we found women being praised for being sexually in control or being enamored for being, um, using their bodies for their own gain, for being in control of their bodies. But we didn't actually find a subversion and a subversion of traditional patriarchal sexuality would be to say women's sexuality is neutral. It is neither morally good nor bad and people can do what they want with it. But instead, what metal has tended to do is just invert it. So what we find is a lot of stuff that scorns Mary for being a virgin, which is no more like, how is that better? Right. <laughs> still being judged for how her body has been used generally by men not her own choices we're not going do you know what mary's a virgin good for her she chose who to have sex with which is what we really want <laughs> as, as feminists for, about sexuality we're still going ha 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 
she's an idiot for being a virgin and for being pure. And we're mocking the purity and upholding. And again, I don't even know the terms because we're, I'm stuck in terms of purity and impurity, right? I mean, how? That's so judgmental and dreadful. So all of our language around sexuality and women can be really difficult to navigate because kind of back to how people are using images. Okay, this is great. And it's good that you're praising her for being that. But what are you saying about the other women who are not that? that and, and how are we scorning them? And yeah, we found that actually this was, this was not the subversive type of sexuality that, that we would like. It's not crumbling patriarchy. It's still a patriarchal pyramid of, of goodness and badness. We just, we've turned it on its head and now the pure virgin is at the bottom and she's an idiot. Um, and with motherhood, again, it's so interesting because an awful lot of our of texts, particularly biblical texts, when they talk about motherhood, men are described as mothers. So God turns up as a mother, Jesus, has motherhood tendencies Paul describes himself as a mother and it's the softness and but the motherhood that we're praising in metal and this is just to do with aesthetics I think sometimes is the fierceness and the the mother bear's going to come and rip your face off <laughs> but not but not nurturing and so again there's an interesting critique to be had about about how we value and and, and what we value and how subversive it truly is um, when it comes to women's bodies in a way that men's bodies and men's actions are, are rarely critiqued in the same way, or at least with not the same judgment. You know, with women's sexuality is still a thing to be, to be judged good or bad. And who's doing the judging is always an interesting question to ask. Like who, who has decided that this is a positive type of sexuality? Um, and is it a man that just fancies women that are like that? <laughs> Right, of course. That's so interesting. Now, it sounds like the conference is going to cover a lot of things. Can you give us an idea of what to expect from the conference and what kind of papers are going to be there? Yeah, I've, I've got them up. I, I had to open it to remember. We've got a real, we've got a, a real breadth. So we have panels that will be discussing specific eras in history. Um, so we've got some stuff on, we've got one called A Brutal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Engagements with Ancient Rome. Um, we've got some stuff on a round table on, on kind of Byzantine studies. Um, we've got some sections on pre-Abrahamic heritage. So that one particularly covers an awful lot of ground. So we're going from Irish saga to Persian black metal um, wow. to of Portugal. So we've got different periods of time represented quite well but we've also I think the thing that's really exciting for me anyway because it's the stuff I don't know about we've got um, things from all across the globe so we have got people presenting we've got a thing uh, a whole section on Mesoamerica which is a, an era of kind of history and study that I I don't really know anything about um, which is going to be really exciting um, we have a round table looking at orientalism in metal and we have got papers on yeah everything from Mongolia through to South America, back up to kind of indigenous stuff in Ireland. So really exciting papers, but also we've given it a lot of time for discussion. So we've got these round tables in the evening. So we've got one big section in the afternoon of papers, but then we've got round tables in the evening that are gonna be much more discursive. Um, and we've got a lot of happy hours put in. And that's for two reasons. One, it's accessibility. So I have a chronic, fatigue illness 
And so we're trying to make this something that people can dip in and out of, depending on their accessibility needs for disability and, um, and time zones. We try to make it as accessible as we can, but also so that we can get these conversations going. Because yeah, we're covering a lot of ground, but the points of intersection between these different types of history study, different types of musicology, We've got linguists presenting, we've got standard kind of like historians presenting, we've got um, musicologists presenting, we've got like, we've got a lot in there. Yep. In addition, um, we have musicians as well. Um, and so we have uh, some papers such as uh, a paper on the Italian band Stormlord, a, uh, who write uh, about Roman mythology and history. And so uh, that is going to be presented by an Italian classicist and an Italian metal musician. Okay? And we have another paper on, uh, you know, on a person named Marios uh, Kutsukos, okay, who has written lyrics on Greek mythology and history uh, for a host of bands. Okay? Uh, and so getting kind of his perspective, you know, as a songwriter. A, uh, as well as well as musicians, you know, because, you know, I think one of my limitations, uh, you know, as a classical philologist and not a musician is that, you know, I fixate on, you know, the written word and lyrics, but yeah. we have to remember that, you know, for instance, the plays of Sophocles and Euripides and Aristophanes, they were, what we have are lyric sheets, okay? and these were part of a musical and visual presentation. And so with heavy metal, you know, the music, right? It, it's about the music. And so it's, I think it's important that we have people in this conference who are, you know, not only looking at how texts and images are incorporated into this, into this, uh, into this uh, gestalt, but also, you know, um, how you translate from text to sound and image as well, and how you have this whole, you know, Kunstwerk, uh, which also involves, you know, the artist and their positionality, you know, within their culture and point in time and their and and the political moment. So I'm excited for yes. that. Um, again, I'm excited for the social hours where we can just have plenty of time to keep the discussion going or just have more lighthearted conversation. Sure. You know, we're going to like program some more, you know, less structured things where we'll watch, you know, cheesy music videos by like Xdeo and stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, I already, we already mentioned that, you know, we'll have, we'll show each other our, our cats and stuff. Um, but one of our social hours is uh, we're actually going to have a, a multilingual social hour where there'll be breakout rooms for the various languages uh, that are represented in the conference uh, participants. So we'll have a room where you can speak French or Spanish, uh, Portuguese, uh, Greek, um, German, etc. cetera, um, because we really want this to be, this is what we love about, you know, online conferences and, you know, I'm not calling this a silver lining to the whole pandemic and everything, because that would be tactless. Um, but I think the pandemic did make us realize, you know, what the advantages of online conferences are for accessibility, um, you know, as well as creating international dialogues across oceans. Okay, as we are as we are doing right now between Boston, North Carolina, and the UK, um, and we couldn't do that if we just had a regional local conference in either of these places. 
right? Um, and so I hope that continues even, you know, at a time, you know, if ever, uh, that, you know, in-person conferences are, you know, can be totally safe. So we're just taking advantage of that. Well, it's th so we're Thursday to Saturday, so partly so because we knew that some people wouldn't be able to come to everything. So it is okay if you register, but you can only come to one panel. We'd be love to have you anyway. Like, don't think, oh, I can't do all three days. Um, and also people are interested in different things. So maybe you can make time in your week for the Mesoamerican panel, but you haven't got three afternoons and evenings. That's okay. We, no one will be taking attendance and <laughs> like checking, but we, we'd love to have as many things. And when it comes to accommodations, if you do need accommodations and access um, for disability or language reasons, get in touch with us. We may not be able to fix it, but we're going to try our best. Everything's going to have captions. So although it's over Zoom, we will have closed captions generated automatically. So people will be able to uh, watch in if they can't listen in. So that's important that, to us. So that is tell terrific. Us. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. absolutely wonderful. Well, I know I'm excited. Uh, so in the meantime, you know, both of you, you, you have uh, such interesting sort of bodies of work. Where can we find you to follow along with everything that you're doing? Um, so we're both on Twitter. So I'm uh, at Metal Classicist, um, nice. and that's where I, yeah, it's where I do, uh, you know, a lot of my public engagement. Um, so that's the main place to catch me. Um, but I also run a Facebook page called uh, Heavy Metal and the Ancient World, um, which is where I sort of do public engagement on that uh, platform. And I have a blog uh, where you know, I discuss some of this stuff, including uh, on the blog is a bibliography of scholarship on the reception of various topics in uh, antiquity uh, in heavy metal that you can check out. Um, and that's uh, heavymetalclassicist.home.blog. Perfect. Cool. And I, yeah, I'm on Twitter as I'm at Naylor Davis. Um, and so that's just my surname, which is easy to, <laughs> to remember. Um, and I have a Patreon um, because I am a disabled scholar and I've had to step away from academia proper, in inverted commas, like a, as in full-time lecturing. Um, so I have a Patreon account, um, which is www.patreon.com forward slash metal biblical scholar. Um, and it supports my work on both metal and biblical scholarly research and some of the stuff I do in the community because I do work with churches on biblical literacy and trying to understand kind of help people where they misuse and abuse the bible um so that's me and you can kind of catch up with stuff i do there i also have a hum Codman's page under that that's a blog but i don't think i've written anything on it yet maybe i'll start because of the conference and have some actual new research you know you set up a website and then you think i don't have anything new to say right now i don't know why i did that but i have new things coming so yeah well, it's there. It's ready when when you are. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we have a and we have a collect. We we share a Gmail account for the conference. It's uh, metalpremodernity at gmail dot com. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, that's wonderful. Well, thank you guys both so much for your time today. This has been such an interesting conversation, and I can't wait for the conference. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, and giving us this us. Well, that was fun. If you're interested in participating in more of these discussions about the intersection of history and heavy metal, be sure to stop by the conference next month. Once again, it's heavy metal and global pre-modernity, and it's open to everybody, so check it out. 
You can register online through the Brandeis University website, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well so you won't miss out. Thank you once again to Charlotte and Jeremy for this fascinating conversation, and thank you as well to our marvelous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Kelly Simon, Akko Spoot, and Sylvia Van Eyck. We couldn't do it without you guys, so thank you, as always, for your generous support. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirty sexy history, or you can follow us at dirty sexy history on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where we will, of course, post the photos from today's show. Thank you as always for your patience. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.